This episode of Show Me the Meaning is brought to you by Monster Hunter Rise. Monster Hunter Rise is available to purchase today on Nintendo Switch. If you want to learn more about the game, check out our latest video on the Wisecrack channel or click the link in the show notes. Now, on to the show. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecrack's movie podcast. Show me the monsters! Oh, show me the monsters. I am Austin Hayden, and I am joined by Raymond. Very nice to be entering the drift with you today, Austin. Oh, are we on a mental link? That's wonderful. Well, we have a third member on this Jaeger that we are going to be piloting today, at least for the beginning. It is our producer, Joy. Joy, how are you? Hi, everyone. Great. (laughs) All right, so here's the thing. We're going to be talking about Pacific Rim. Guillermo del Toro's 2013 kind of big blockbuster effort, and it stars Charlie Hunnam, Rinko Kikuchi, Idris Elba, Charlie Day, Ron Perlman, and a few others. But what we decided to do first, before we get into the chat, Joy has never seen Pacific Rim, nor has she seen the trailer for Pacific Rim. So she uh, was looking at some of the thumbnails and stills as we were trying to prepare for this episode, and Raymond was like, I bet you can do a really good synopsis of this film just by looking at those photos. So what we want to do is we want to see if Joy can tell us what her impression is. What does she think this film is and what is it about just by looking at those photos, not having seen the film or the trailer. Joy, what do you think Pacific Rim is all about? Right. So uh, I know that it's a monster movie because we were specifically talking about doing monster movie, a monster movie for this week's episode. Um, so I have some kind of inkling that uh, it's kind of like a kaiju film, maybe, even though there's no uh, dinosaur or monster in the thumbs or in imagery. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also giving off like a Prometheus vibe or like mm-hmm. a... Um, uh, uh what else kind of vibe like transformers too obviously with the (laughs) mecha suits or whatever it's got going on uh so i have a feeling that it's the future and that the characters explore either it's either another planet or it's earth in the future and there's a monster problem happening and they need to figure out Uh, what, a monster problem. Yeah, <laughs> and there, or there's a giant monster that's causing havoc. I mean, I'm taking a lot of this from just like Godzilla, I guess. There's, you know, a giant monster that's just been discovered and they need to uh, tame it or uh, communicate with it to make sure that it doesn't ruin civilization. Okay, uh, that, that's, per, that's pretty good. I like that. That's pretty good. I, uh, yeah. uh, I have one more question. What do you think about the leads? What kind of leads are in this film? Who, who sure. are the lead actors? Yeah, give us give us okay. the story. Mm-hmm. Well, well, you just I, announced I thought, a bunch of people in it, Austin. <laughs> yeah, I thought Idris Elba was in this, but maybe it's just his voice because I didn't see him in any of the marketing, but he's usually a villain, so... I expect him to be the villain or maybe the monster, (laughs) then I'm not sure. Uh, Maybe the rest is just a generic um, action movie with boy and girl. I mean, there's a man and a woman on the thumbnail, so maybe um, a man and a woman and there's some kind of B-plot romance. But 
I don't know the details. And one of them's a scientist, and the other one's like a military person. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that is so cute. This is yeah. This I is, I really I really yeah, like yeah. this. I threw this out in the chat uh, yesterday or the day before when we were viewing the thumbnails, just because. Uh, as Joy asked me when I threw that out as an idea that she should get on and, and sort of synopsize the movie for us without having seen it, she was like, well, is it just really generic? And I don't I don't know that generic is the word, but I, the, the thing that I kind of threw out when we were talking about this was that it, this movie gives you exactly what it's advertising. And I was just really excited to hear what someone who had never seen it or never even seen a trailer thought they might get out of this. And Joy, that was surprisingly very close. Whoa. Okay. Well, good for me. I mean, I'm excited to hear the recap and your discussion. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Joy. That was fun. We should do that sort of thing more often with films that uh, that you haven't seen. (laughs) For sure. Okay. So... So what we're going to do is first is we're going to talk about first impressions. First time we saw this film, what's it like revisiting on our second viewing? So Raymond, how many times have you seen this film? If this was the first time, great. If it's multiple times, tell us if your opinion of it has changed. What do you got? Uh, I've seen this a few times, actually. Okay. I, I really um, I really admire Guillermo del Toro. Uh, so this was one of my most anticipated films the year that it came out. Uh, 2013 actually ended up being a really, really great year for science fiction. That was the same year that... Uh, the World's End, uh, Edgar Wright's movie came out. Um, I think Shane Carruth had Upstream Color released that year. Uh, Computer Great Chess film. came out that year, which is what? Computer Chess or Upstream Color? Upstream Color. But I think both of those seem really up your alley. I'm curious what you would say about uh, uh, Andrew Bajalski's Computer Chess as well. But um, okay. it, this this movie, I think, like I said before, it's exactly as advertised. You you get yeah. what's on the box. And as much as I admire Guillermo del Toro, um, I have a, a, a kind of weird approach, or not necessarily approach, but relationship with his movies, that he may be one of my favorite filmmakers, but his filmography is very hit or miss. But even mm. when he misses, I feel like he takes such big, bold risks, and I really admire his um, uh, his whole approach as a filmmaker. I admire his earnestness, and I, I think... Mm. Uh, his films, this one, uh, as much as any of them, come from a, a place of real passion and sincerity. Yes. Um, so uh, I, I've seen this a, a few times. Like I said, it, it was kind of a pleasure to rewatch. I, I think it's um, a really, really solid action sci-fi flick. Uh, it may not be reinventing the wheel, but it's um, it's it's certainly enjoyable. You know, it's a it's a, a, a two hours well spent. I had a good time. Yeah. Yeah. So actually, this is the first time I've really seen this film. I've had it on the background before, but I just wasn't really paying attention. This was the first time that I actually paid attention. I even had like, you know, pen in hand, paper down there, taking notes, trying. I was trying my best to come up with. This is called Show Me the Meaning. This isn't Monsters Bad, (laughs) Robots Good. I mean, the whole idea is that we're trying to unpack the layers and try to see if there's something there that's going on, right? And so I was doing a. And actually, I thought it would be a struggle but it, it I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in this film that we can explore so in that sense I was really impressed and then I really love the bit that you mentioned about del Toro's earnestness I think a lot of times it's really easy to phone something in when it's just a studio project or a big blockbuster film and you can actually tell there's like no cynicism whatsoever there is a sincerity that del Toro wanted to make the best and most most enjoyable action film 
kaiju monster action sci-fi film that he could and i think that it's actually i think from the get-go it's paced really well it gets you right into the story i think some of the fight scenes are a little bit video game-y for me but the opening is not like the opening i thought was really good when the monster comes out and crushes the golden gate bridge and stuff like that like to me that was actually great like all of a sudden you're brought straight in um, but the, the rest of the fight. I love those those ground level moments where you kind of see it from the humans' perspectives. I think yeah. there, as much as the robot versus monster action is a lot of fun, once you have scaled everything up to like the ship is a sword now, the the big cargo <laughs> ship is being used to bludgeon the monster, you do lose you do lose kind of a sense of perspective. That's something that there was. I also watched the uh, the sequel in the Netflix anime series to, to prepare for this podcast. And the Netflix anime series is called Pacific Rim the Black. And in that one, that one's much more like a ground level story. It, 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 mm. it more focuses on uh, the characters trying to get across um, the Australian outback, fittingly enough. Oh, cool. Um, but uh, sorry, sorry for interrupting. I just I, I, I think you, you were onto something there because that Golden Gate Bridge moment is one of those things kind of like... Uh, those glimpses of the monster in Cloverfield where it inspires yes. a certain different kind of awe and terror. I thought a lot about Cloverfield as I was watching this. Less, I thought more about Cloverfield and less about like the Godzilla franchise. Um, and I don't know why that is. And maybe it's because of the way that the, the, the kaiju looked. I don't know, but I... I kind of like at that moment, at that moment, I thought I thought a lot. And then, of course, the street level, it really did have that kind of um, cinema verite kind of style to it at times, which which I really enjoyed. So, okay, so that's the basic impressions. Let's do a recap and then we'll start unpacking this beast. Pardon the pun. And let's see if we can find anything interesting that we can talk about at at a deeper level. Before we begin our discussion, I just wanted to take a brief second to shout out our sponsor, Monster Hunter Rise. Monster Hunter Rise is an action RPG that transports players to the new Kimura Village. Here players can suit up, select the various weapon types, and begin to explore the new hunting grounds. There's so much to do in Monster Hunter Rise. You'll fight epic monster bosses and use their resources to craft new tools and also have the option to complete side quests. In this game, there's some awesome new opponents like a shape-shifting monster, an amphibious monster, and so much more. Monster Hunter Rise has also included an awesome new mechanic called the Wirebug, so you can scale mountains and perform aerial attacks, which totally mixes up the gameplay from previous versions. You can play solo or team up with friends. The game offers local and online co-op for up to three people, so definitely check it out. Maybe gift it to your best friend. It's super easy to sink 50 hours or so in, though, so make sure you clear your weekend. If you want to learn more about the world of Monster Hunter Rise, then check out the video we just released on the Wisecrack main channel. We dive deep into the complexity of monsters and their history by examining our new favorite monster hunter. Check it out. Link in the show notes, and don't forget to grab your copy of Monster Hunter Rise, available on the Nintendo Switch today. Now, back to the show. So, okay, I got two recaps. One is the short, kind of jokey one, and one is the long one, so bear with me here. But basically, this is the film. Monsters appear, humans have to fight them, they do well, then monsters get stronger, humans develop better technology, then humans struggle to win, then the hero dude uses his warrior spirit to ultimately defeat the monsters with the help of a female sidekick and a team of tech and military dudes. Which is basically what Joy said. So... Yeah. 
That's great. Uh, like I great. said, she was she was pretty much on base. They don't emphasize the romance um, as yes. much. There's kind of a a hint of that near the end, but I I, um, I could see why Joy would have in most movies like this. You would have the uh, uh, the the big robot piloting hunk uh, eventually. Yes. Sweep the uh, the lady scientist off her feet, and uh, that is right. it's wedding bells for them. <laughs> as soon as these monsters are back in the breach. All right, so here's the real synopsis. So kaiju emerge from an interdimensional porter at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. Humans then build huge robots called Jaeg- huge robots called Jaegers, which means hunter in German, to fight these monsters. Piloted by two or more humans via a mental link, these robots are humanity's best defense. After pilot Raleigh's brother dies fighting a kaiju, Raleigh quits the Jaeger program. Five years later, the world governments decide to defund the Jaeger program and replace it with coastal defense walls. All remaining Jaegers are then set to be destroyed. Later, Raleigh gets recruited by Marshall Stacker Pentecost, Idris Elba, who's actually not a bad guy, Joy. He's a good guy in this film. Um, but So Raleigh gets recruited by Pentecost, also Idris Elba, to rejoin the Jaeger program and defend against a rising attack. Raleigh gets teamed up with Pentecost's protege slash sort of adoptive daughter figure, Mako Mori, who is still reeling from the trauma of her family's death at the hands or the claws or the paws of a kaiju. Meanwhile, Dr. Newt, played by Charlie Day from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, does a little mental link with a kaiju and discovers that kaiju are in fact biological weapons being grown by alien colonists who are hell-bent on taking over Earth. But now that the mental link has been made, Newt unwittingly becomes a homing device for kaiju to come and find the humans and kill them. We later then find out that Pentecost actually has terminal cancer and he wants to make a last-ditch effort to eliminate the threat kind of as his swan song. In the final battle, a new Category 5 kaiju appears, but the team all come together and they ultimately defeat it, with Raleigh and Mako embracing at the end in friendship, or is there a little bit of a budding romance? It's kind of ambiguous. And with that, the feel-good humans fighting monsters story comes to an end. So, I guess the first thing I want to say is Joy pretty much nailed the kind of broad strokes of this, you kind of said that this film kind of just is what it is, for lack of a better term. It's what's on the box. You kind of get what you were expecting. Do you think Del Toro's talents are wasted in this film? No, I don't I don't think so. I think... I never want to say that uh, someone's talents are wasted because I, I think that uh, undercuts their, their, their agency and, and their earnestness. And, that, like... What I was referring to before with uh, with Del Toro, I, I think, you know, if you read about the stuff that uh, some interviews with him surrounding Pacific Rim, the way that he talks about it, the way that he talks about, uh, you know, mecha anime and and kaiju films of the past, like those those were really important to him growing up. I think those were really formative for him as a film fan and a filmmaker. And this is also the opportunity for him to create monsters on a grand scale and that's something that he uh, obviously has uh, explored as a theme his entire career I, I will say one of I think Guillermo del Toro's greatest strengths can also be a little bit of a weakness for him and I think it may be a bit more of a weakness for him in this film that he gets so involved and uh, so invested in the minutiae of of creature not just not just creature design but creature evolution 
you know, if you if you listen to him talk about the way that his creatures are designed, there is a sort of organic thought process behind it that he he wants them to have inner lives that inform their characters and that in, inform their their image and um, I think that some of the monsters in this and some of the robots are are, are really really well designed they they have a a cool unique look to them while still being drawn from recognizable influences but I think that he sometimes misses the forest for the trees with this one. Because sometimes the action is a little bit muddy. You don't have a real clear sense of, uh, of how the, the Jaegers move. And there's, there's a great sense of, of scale and scope. But uh, at times it, it does feel a little bit like he's, he's so obsessed with all the little things like having a rocket booster in the robot's elbow so that it can make it punch harder that he doesn't really think about like what the implication of having that thing back there is and how useless it is for the other 99.9% of the fights that that, that that thing gets into is like the amount of time you have to wait for it to charge up and fire. It's just... Weird things like that, that uh, uh, there was sort of a feeling I got from this that I get uh, sometimes when I watch James Bond movies, where um, I may have mentioned this on the Goldfinger episode, where it's like uh, every single James Bond movie, he's given three or four gadgets at the beginning of the movie, and through the course of the film, he needs exactly those three or four gadgets. <laughs> and there are some times with the Jaegers in this where I'm just like, yeah, yeah. oh, well, the, you know, uh, they they had the rocket they had the rocket punch saved for exactly this moment, or they have the sword that they should have been using the entire movie. <laughs> they just zip that out at the end when all of their their guns are spent. And at one point, I think uh, Charlie Hunnam, when they're like shooting a plasma cannon into a kaiju's face, he goes, empty the clip. And I was like, you have yeah, a yeah, fucking yeah. plasma cannon clip? Like what? I just, you don't see a utility belt where they can like pop in another magazine full of energy balls. It's just weird stuff like that where the visual vocabulary doesn't often or doesn't always exactly match with the, the vocabulary of, of like practicality or logic. But, um, like I said, it's still it's still really good fun. It's called foreshadowing when you say that these are the three tools that you're gonna need, and then it just so happens. That yeah, you, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so what, but to, what do we to think? answer your question about his his talents being wasted on the film, I think if anything, if you watch the sequel, I, I think it's a testament to his abilities how much he elevates this material. And granted, uh, I think it was Stephen Denight who did the second film, but. Uh, he, he didn't have as much money behind the, the sequel as uh, Guillermo del Toro mm. did for this one. But you can still, you can still feel the, the, the passion that del Toro brings to this, not only for the monsters, but also the design of the universe. Some of those like yeah. cool uh, exterior sets where the, the cities are built around the kaiju bones and stuff. I, I think he definitely elevates this kind of material. But sorry, go ahead. So, yeah, so besides um, his attention to detail and... Um, obviously his passion. What do you think are the hallmarks of a Del Toro film? Oh, certainly monsters to some extent, but that's on a okay. surface level. If you, if you, um, uh, he, he had this great exhibit at LACMA and I, I think it toured for a while as well called oh, Atomic yeah, yeah, Monsters. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, I have, I, I went to that like three times and I, I have the, the companion book uh, to the, uh, to the exhibit with a lot of photographs from his uh, his uh, personal collection over at Bleak House. And he talks in that about how 
monsters are essentially like the patron saints of misfits and that mm. ghosts and monsters serve as a metaphor, whether it's, uh, or, or at least in the best circumstances, they serve as a metaphor, whether it's for uh, grief or trauma, uh, it could be depression, it could be um, uh, progress or industrialization. Like, I, I think he he's someone, especially if you watch uh, a lot of his early films, uh, whether Devil's Backbone, Kronos, Pan's Labyrinth, he's someone who has a penchant for not only exploring history through the lens of the fantastic, but also exploring really, really personal things through the lens of the fantastic. And I, I think that's that's one of the things that makes his movies so lovable for me, even if I'm not exactly, uh, even for his sort of, some of his films that are maybe a little bit half-baked or... Um, uh, in the the lesser hemisphere of his work, um, it, it, there's always still something so personal about it that I appreciate and I, I really respond to. I, I, there's no end to my my uh, admiration for him. I, I really really adore him. It's precisely that relationship that you mentioned between grief, trauma, depression, and monsters that I was really drawn to in this film because you have um, the female protagonist um, Mako who is reeling from this traumatic experience, right, of her family being killed. And so remember there's this bit when they first go into the, into the mental link and uh, she has this kind of traumatic flashback and uh, Charlie Hunnam's character Raleigh is like, it's just a memory, it's just a memory. And the thing that I thought was interesting here was the depth with which this film actually explores how the past forms us or how the past haunts us. And then you have Idris Elba who steps in as like a surrogate father figure who was the original uh, kaiju pilot that actually rescued her from that monster. So there's a sense in which you also have a kind of relationship of transference, right? And there's something really interesting in this if we think about it from a psychoanalytical point of view. Um, Freud constantly talks about how every memory is a misremembering. So there's something then about this pathological repetition that she has of repeating this traumatic experience with this monster. So she's both terrified of these monsters because they relate to that trauma, but then at the same time, she's also fascinated by them, which is very often the case with our fears, right? Like, I'm, I'm deathly afraid of sharks, but I surf. And there's something about the fear. I don't like seeing fucking shark videos pop up on my Instagram feed, but they always do. There's like drone guys here in Australia that are always like, oh, look at the great whites that we saw right at the beach where I surf all the time. And I'm like, thanks guys. I don't want to see that. I'm terrified. (laughs) I'm terrified of them, but so fascinated by them at the same time. And so there's something interesting about how that is the case. Um, And so what I think this film does really well is kind of explores all of these tensions between trauma, memory, past, how that forms us in our psyche, how we have elements of transference, and then ultimately, what is it about? It's about her coming, becoming adjusted to that trauma, her kind of not negating it or saying like, ah, big deal, my family died, but no, figuring out how to live within that contradiction. And I think there's something actually quite touching and beautiful about that and i think that that's what i meant by this kind of sincerity that you get in this storytelling that maybe in the hands of a lesser storyteller wouldn't have been executed with such craft you know yeah no i I absolutely hear you and i i do like um i i like the the found family aspects uh, of the film I, i i like that and it's one of the things that i kind of wish the movie did more of because in the in the beginning of the film, Charlie Hunnam says something in the in the voiceover to the extent of like, 
uh, or to the effect of, um, you know, we Jaeger pilots are not who you would expect. We're not the top of the class. We're not the pilots. We're not astronauts. We're, we're, we're just the, the, there's this sort of conceit that what makes you a good Jaeger pilot is not necessarily being a great brawler or uh, 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 great at interfacing with the robot itself, but someone, uh, but being able to interface with someone in the drift more than anything. Like that seems to be yeah, it's about the most intuition part of it. Right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Because when, when Raleigh first meets Mako, she's all technical, right? Like, you got to do this, you got to do that move, you got to do this. So she's like the one side, the yin, and he's like the yang because he's all about intuition and you just feel it and you just kind of go with it, which is one, I just want to say interesting because they balance each other out. Two, potentially, and I didn't know, but it's potentially kind of problematic. And of course, here I am, a white middle class yuppie dude trying to say this, but you have the kind of stereotypical Asian female character that's the sidekick that is like the quant. Right. And I did feel a little bit uncomfortable when I saw that because it just felt a little bit too convenient and kind of tropey. But but nevertheless, I do think that at least what Del Toro is trying to do, even if he kind of does slip up, maybe a little bit there, we might say socially, maybe not. Maybe I'm just being a sort of lefty snowflake, which, you know, people can comment on me being a soy boy. And maybe that's the case. But um, but I did think that there's at least something interesting in what Del Toro is trying to do about kind of creating that sort of yin yang. You've got the one side that is tactical and you've got the other side that is like heart spirit warrior. And those two are needed together. And that, that was actually something that stuck out to me a little bit, um, especially watching, I was watching one of uh, all the special features on the Blu-ray and there's one, there's one great clip where uh, Del Toro is talking about how he wanted this movie to be about the world saving the world, not just, you know, the Americans swoop in and save the world. Yes. Um, and as he's expounding on that, he goes, you know, you have... Uh, the American, you, you have the, he says something like, you have the American guy, and uh, I need a Japanese girl, and I need the An Chinese Australian. triplets, and I need the Australian, the Australian uh, brawlers, and uh, the, the Russian, but I was like, what a weird casting call to be like, hey, we need some heroes, one American hunk, one Japanese girl, and it, it comes back to that thing of like, even though they say at the beginning that we're not the people you would expect to be piloting these Jaegers. I get that in a sort of philosophical sense that, you know, maybe they're not the top of their class. And I get what the movie's trying to say with that. But when you look at the crew that they have, it's like a, a, a set of Chinese triplets who don't have three lines between them. One one uh, Japanese woman, Mako Mori. There's one other woman who pilots a Jaeger, but she doesn't get many lines. And then it's like four or five pretty standard action movie hunks. And I I do I do hear what you're saying that we may be sitting here going like, oh well, it's not diverse enough. It's not this, that, and the other. And I know that that's an easy bone to pick with it. But there's a part of me that really wishes because this is such a a unique conceit and because the the idea that it's all about drifting with each other more so than getting into the Jaeger and being able to pull the right levers at the right time necessarily, I wish that they had used that as an opportunity to expand the notion of, of who could pilot these things or who you could imagine in, in the suits. And, and when I think of Del Toro, like I was saying, I think of him as someone who he talks about monsters as once again the patron saint of misfits i wish this was more of a misfitty group rather than a bunch of you know 
conventionally attractive movie stars. Like I think it, I think it would be really, really cool if they, if they had like, um, uh, uh, you know, some, some kids in there who uh, are like roughing each other up and they're getting pulled apart and they go, wait, those two are pilots. Uh, I don't like our odds, you know, or like, uh, when when they go into the drift and and like the weapons of the Jaeger form around their arms, I just started thinking like, wouldn't it be cool to 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 have some representation of of differently abled people who got in there and and maybe had an amputated arm that they could regrow in the drift in a sense, or like two neurodivergent characters that no one else was really good at connecting with, but had a really abstract approach to combat, and maybe their Jaeger is capable of doing all these outside the box maneuvers, almost more like a kaiju and they're the only ones who can pilot it um i i really really love a lot of the ideas in this movie and i think that when you step back and look at it one of the movie's biggest flaws is that it ends up looking exactly the way you know it it, it is exactly what you expect it to be and that's once again could be a strength in certain circumstances but in this in this instance it kind of surprises me uh because as, as much as I can feel his love for the material, it's one of those things that it, it does feel like he's maybe playing these characters as tropes a little bit. And, and I like the found family narrative, but I just, I wish they did more with it. I wish that they did more with these notions of not just combating personalities, but conflicting ideas of what constitutes on-screen heroism. Ooh, that'd be really cool. Yeah, they're... There's a way that we can critique this, but at the same time, I also kind of enjoy it, right? Like, one of my favorite movies of all time is Top Gun, which is just a straight-up, like, dude film, right? Um, but one of the – there's a line in this where Idris Elba's character, uh, Pentecost, comes back to get Raleigh, who's left after his brother's death, and he's trying to recruit him to the kind of reburgeoning Jaeger program. And he says, like, how do you want to die? Do you want to die here or do you want to die in a Jaeger? And he emphasizes it, and it's like, like I could feel like the man testosterone in me that was like, I want, I want to die in a fucking Jaeger, man. Like I'm a warrior, you know. Like there's the thing is, is there's that warrior spirit that's like the dude that is like, I'm gonna friggin' do this. And I think there's also something interesting to say about how the world governments are all coming together to create these walls, these defense walls. And then what you have on the other side is these guys who are the individual heroes. They're like the people who are the supermen, if you will, the ubermensch, right? And so what you have is, and I almost wonder if this is a kind of like interesting political point, you have like this global geopolitical strategy um, and these these large uh, bureaucratic institutions that have one solution, and then you have like this rogue fringe of individual ubermensch uh, in the form of pilots and also in the form of the Jaeger robots who then are kind of like the other side. And it's kind of like a, a, a geopolitical strategic battle between those two. And of course, who wins in the end? The heroic individual, which does make me think that it's still a very Western film. It's still very Westernized. It's still got a bit maybe of a kind of, even though Del Toro is not American, it still has a little bit of a type of like American Hollywood kind of hero myth element to it. And I don't know. I, 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 I both, I think we could be critical about that, but I also am kind of like, yeah, I kind of love it at the same time, you know? So, because who doesn't want to be the hero of their own story, right? So, oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, and uh, to the, to that point, there there is a um, a saying I quite like that uh, uh, villains are always the hero of their own story. Um, mm. And in this one, I I think they're 
they're just kind of monsters and they want to destroy things <laughs> and they they speculate as to their objective um you know they want to terraform the world and and kind of take over and they they get more into more of that in in, in uh, the sequels um but i as as much as i i dig what you're saying as it pertains to the protagonists i think there are times where um this this movie kind of hits the ceiling because it's not it's not trying to expand the that notion of of the traditional action sci-fi movie beats you know the traditional mm. robot v monster or whatever <laughs> if there can be said to be a tradition of of robot v monster yeah, this yeah. one doesn't necessarily break the mold still still a very very good uh representation of that genre but for someone as inventive as uh, Guillermo del Toro, it's surprising that he didn't bring more humanity, especially because I know how much he cares about these monsters as, uh, as, as objects. Um, what do you think about how this film was received? So it didn't do great in the United States in terms of box office, but it did really well overseas. Do you think that that says something about the kind of different cultural expectations about cinema filmmaking or do you think it's also something about maybe the kaiju film is something that is much more um it has a richer history maybe overseas internationally than in the united states although i don't know if that's entirely true i'm just kind of wondering i'm trying to to see what what we can say about this phenomenon um yeah i mean if you if you watch the sequel it's very clear that uh this movie did very well in china because there is <laughs> there's a there's a uh, a character in the second one that is set up as like the the sort of generic corporate bad guy and uh she ends up being a red herring um she she runs this this chinese tech firm and by the end of the movie when all hope is lost she comes like rocketing out of the sky and and she saves the day and it's a character that kind of um I don't know if you're you're aware of this, Austin, but there are a handful of uh, Marvel movies that have scenes that were shot just for the release in China. I think the the most egregious or at least talked about example of it is in um in Iron Man three when he has his uh he has his heart fixed uh, and he has the the arc reactor taken out and he finally gets like a, a surgery to to take care of the whole thing and. In the American movie, that is just kind of like thrown off at the end. It's I think there's a, a scene where it shows the doctor sort of going into operate, and then it cuts to him like coming home with a jar of uh, shrapnel or something. And in the Chinese release, the, there is a, a scene with two very famous Chinese actors who are the doctors who are performing the surgery on Iron Man, and there are like three scenes that set it up that constitute like 10 minutes of the movie in China that basically introduce these characters as the world's top cardiac surgeons and then uh, show them getting ready for the operation and then show them like shaking Iron Man's hand in his suit after they do it. And it's one of those things that uh, from what I've heard from a lot of uh, uh, a lot of folks on the internet who who live in China and talked about it, they they're like, yeah, it's just really pandery. We don't know why they do that. It it's kind of annoying. But all that to say, I I apologize for uh, digressing. But 
these there are scenes in the sequel to this that feel like that that feel yeah, like yeah. there's a there's a movie and then they shot a handful of scenes to make uh, to make the chinese government really happy and then they just forgot to cut those out of the american version of pacific rim uprising so it, it, i i think it is this movie I, I as far as i know might be the only movie to launch a franchise based essentially entirely on the the um the chinese box office receipts because it it didn't do Mm. well over here uh and to my understanding if if it hadn't been embraced as much uh, as it was by the chinese audiences i i don't think the second one would exist well if audience members want a little bit of insider information on the industry so before i became an independent producer uh i worked at a production company in la and i remember many 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 meetings sitting down with creators with directors with studios networks and one of the constant questions that we got was what are the international pre-sales going to look like so what you have actually in production companies now are people whose sole job is to measure what the appetite is on that intellectual property overseas and measuring international pre-sales. That is, what are the actual um, prior sales of this property that uh, are quantified, that are guaranteed cash, um, that you can show and that you can offer to financiers before the film is even made? Right, And so this strategy of appealing to the international box offices is just part and parcel of kind of the new economy of Hollywood filmmaking, I think. And, and part of part, – a lot of people in L.A. bemoan this, you know, because I think there's, you know, a lot of old heads that they're like they, – they get frustrated because they feel like it's pandering to the market rather than being able to just like finance a good idea for it being a good idea. So, you know, new Hollywood is dead kind of thing. Um, the old American industry or uh, studio industry is kind of dead as well. And now you have this global sort of market, if you will, that you need to appeal to. So a lot of people bemoan that, but there's also something kind of awesome to this as well. Like it might be pandering and it might be even cynical in some ways, but there's also something kind of awesome to know that a lot of the films that are being made in Hollywood do have an intended global reach rather than, than just being sort of for lack of a better word, like American propaganda or just insulated within like a very narrow framework. So, because you still have the indie market that's going to allow for those types of films to be made. It's just that the Hollywood film definitely has to be something that is much broader in its appeal, which means maybe that you'll get more interesting stories told from diverse perspectives, maybe a little bit richer in terms of cultural history that can get added in there. So I kind of see both sides to it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think this um this comes back to something that I... um. I think about every every once in a while. Speaking of you know superhero films, uh, now the the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League has been um, setting the internet aflame for the past few weeks. But because they so dominate a lot of the uh, sort of pop culture conversation, at least in film, I know there are a lot of folks who get down on on that trend of uh, of big. Uh, comic book movies that have to appeal not only to four quadrants domestically, but as as many countries as possible abroad as well. Um, and I, I just every time I hear folks getting down on that, and this is this is coming from someone who I, I don't really consider myself a huge fan of comic book movies. I, but you know, to me, live and let live. There's plenty of other movies that are made that I can enjoy. Um, but I always think of uh, there was a, a Quentin Tarantino interview for a while from a while ago. I think when he was uh, promoting the Hateful Eight where he said something to the effect of, um, I think the interviewer asked him what, what his take on 
all of the uh, super heroics in cinema was. And his his answer was like, well, if 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 Disney wasn't making those movies, they wouldn't be making anything better. It's it's not as though they would be you know like put down the superheroes and let's go pick up real heavy dramatic art and give people you know and give independent filmmakers 50 million dollars to go out and make their passion projects and stuff like they would find a, a different weird blockbustery four quadrant hobby horse to ride um so i i do i do get why some folks are down on uh the the glut of uh big budget action movies and I, I do agree that to some extent they, they kind of crowd out smaller films uh, from the market. But um, I don't know. A at the end of the day, uh, more movies than ever are getting made right now. Um, like if you if you look at the amount of movies that were turned out in all of the 70s or all of the 60s, there are there are years now where we will make more movies in one year than they did in an entire decade back then. Like if you can't find something that tickles your fancy as a film fan now, then uh, uh, I would say the, the problem is with you. <laughs> Amen to that. So let me ask you this, kind of um, whipping it back around to Pacific Rim and the broader franchise more broadly. Can you talk a little bit about the anime? What 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 was the anime like? Um, it's it's kind of fun. I I'm not well versed in anime. I've only seen a handful of things. Um, but when I, I knew that they were developing it, I didn't realize it had come out. But when we decided to do this, I I kind of dug into it, started doing some research, found out there were seven episodes on Netflix, and each one of them is only they're all like twenty minutes long. A few of them are about half an hour, but it was it was a really quick watch. Um, my girlfriend and I sat down and we watched it over the course of uh, like three days. We we did two or three episodes a day, and I actually liked a lot of the ideas in it. Um, it is much more of a, a ground level thing most of the time. It takes place after both movies and it features this brother and sister who uh, their parents are Jaeger pilots. They go off to, uh, to try and aid in a, a war effort and then they never come back. And then the kids are sort of nestled into this weird valley in the middle of the desert and there's this burgeoning community there that's cut off from the rest of the world and they find a training jaeger at an underground bunker which is essentially just a a, a fully working jaeger but it doesn't have any weapons it's just used to train cadets and they get into that thing their brother and sister so they're drift compatible and they decide to just start walking across the outback in the direction they last saw their parents go uh, in, in the hopes that they can find them again. Um, and there's, there are some really cool ideas in it. Um, they, they introduce uh, Jaeger-Kaiju hybrids in Pacific Rim Uprising, and they explore that a little bit further in Pacific Rim The Black. Um, and then there's also some sort of fantastic elements. There's this character that they find... Uh, he's just this little boy who doesn't speak, and they find him like floating in a vat of uh, of of you know space goo, and they they get him out of there, and they take it on themselves to protect him and take take him with them. And over the course of the series, you find out that he he may be like an experiment, and there's there's more about him that uh, that they don't realize. Um, overall, like. I, I really enjoyed it. I, there's a part of me that kind of wishes they were still making these movies live action um, mm. because I would I would like to see what's going on in the little corners and pockets of this universe that aren't just 
well, you know, we've got, we dropped these robots right on the breach and now we just watch them duke it out. I would like to see what's happening for the folks who, who live out away from a city center who are kind of watching these things. So what you want, what you want is like a a, a Pacific Rim 10, like Cloverfield, 10, 10 Cloverfield (laughs) Lane, 10 10 Pacific Rim Rim Lane. Lane. Yeah. To see what well, see what it's like. Well, uh, no. well, I wonder. I wonder if the anime actually almost makes it more interesting because some of my hangups were about the visuals, but with with the animated form, you get much more consistency. So I kind of wonder, and I haven't seen the animated series yet. It's on Netflix for people who want to check it out. But I wonder if that would kind of alleviate some of the kind of visual frustrations that I had with like the special effects kind of being a little bit too video gamey and over the top. Because what you get is a consistent aesthetic, you know. So I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, there, there are a lot of really well-designed, once again, creatures in it. They have smaller kaiju now that are like wolf size that are stalking them through the city Ooh. and stuff. So there are some cool ideas that they keep introducing. And it's not necessarily that I want to see 10 Pacific Rim Lane, but I would like to see... I would like to see the, the movie that... Is covered in the uh, in, in the opening narration of Pacific Rim. I would like to see the the when the monsters first make landfall, and I know that's been covered in a lot of films, the you know Godzilla movies and all the the, the Toho era stuff. Um, you know, so that may be a little well trodden. That's probably why they fast forwarded. I also think that Guillermo del Toro was probably more interested in making the movie that has cities built around dinosaur bones rather than making a, a movie that he's seen a thousand times already. So I understand that, but I, I just think that this is such a rich universe, and there's a whole lot going on. Even in the sequel, they introduce a um. One of the main characters of that one is this teenage girl who has built her own Jaeger from scrapped parts, but it's a really small Jaeger that can move really fast and tumble and stuff like that, um, so she can pilot it by herself without a, a drift partner. Um, and I, I, I like that. I like when they get into the, the black market in this first one with Ron Perlman's character, uh, Hannibal Chow, selling the the uh, the uh, kaiju eggs and all that stuff. I, I like seeing all of the, the, the way that these events would be extrapolated across the world uh, and how it would affect the markets and how it would affect civilization and how communities would start to move inland and things like that. I, I just think there's... It, it is such a unique universe, but with movies like this, you only ever you only get, ever get the Rock'em Sock'em robot treatment. And once again, that's not to this film's detriment. I think that this movie is about as good an example of this kind of movie as you can get. But if they're going to keep making, I think they're doing a season two of Pacific Rim the Black. And I, I'd be interested to see uh, w- what other ideas they bring into the universe. Yeah, I'd love to kind of see just a story focusing on a community where you really hardly ever see the monsters at all. Where it's kind of like, this is a bad example maybe, but kind of like the village where like people are living in fear of this thing. But you rarely ever see the thing. You might see certain events. You might get reports of the trauma. It would kind of have a leftovers kind of vibe, which is one of my favorite TV series, you know, where it's really about the people and less so about the event, kind of about the people dealing with the event. That I think would be really interesting. So, but okay, we got to wrap up now and jump into the mailbag here. So uh, what we want to do is we're going to talk about a couple, or we're going to give you guys a couple of the phone calls, the voicemails that people left us, and we're going to jump into a couple of the emails and we're going to kind of unpack some of those things and see if we can chat a little bit and answer some of your questions. 
If you want to call us and leave us a voicemail about Pacific Rim, tell us what your favorite monster movie is. Did you enjoy this? Do you love Guillermo del Toro or not? Or if you want to leave us a voicemail about anything else in our back catalog, please do so at 1-213-534-8807. That's 1-213-534-8807. We'll go to the first call, and it's from Logan, who wants to chat about Fantastic Mr. Fox. Go ahead, Logan. Hey, Wisecrack. It's Logan here. I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller. I'm calling about your Fantastic Mr. Fox podcast. You guys did a great job. Um, I absolutely love that movie. It's my favorite movie of all time. Uh, and I think a lot of it is due to the Twee sensibility. I think you guys are right about the second wave of Twee. I'm 19 years old right now, and even though most of the people I know don't watch Wes Anderson, they have that second wave Twee sensibility. So he's kind of like a spirit animal for everyone my generation, whether or not they all know it. Um, that's the way I see it with a lot of my friends. Um, as well as that, I wanted to talk about, because you guys uh, didn't mention The Wolf, um, which is, I think, a pivotal moment in the movie. Uh, Wes Anderson has been quoted saying that that's the reason he made the movie, was the scene with the wolf. I wonder what your take on the wolf was uh, about how it symbolizes just the true nature, like uh, real animalistic nature, none of the bonds of civilization, and uh, what your take on when Foxy mentions um, he has a phobia of wolves, but not a fear of them, not a fear, just a phobia. Uh, also, I just want to add, I just think it's it's insanely delightful when they when they just say cuss all the time instead of actually cursing. It's, it's truly delightful. Anyway, I'm a big fan. Thank you guys for the work you do. Bye, Logan. Thank you yeah, so that much. Was a, a yeah. note a note we gave ourselves after the last episode where you, Michael, and I were all like, how did we not mention the cuss thing? Yeah, <laughs> I love it. one of the best parts of that I movie. love it so much, and I'll be completely honest. I just relaunched my YouTube channel, so... First of all, plug. You can go, guys, go check that out. It's just Austin Hayden on YouTube. But I'm totally stealing that. I, in my last video, uh, I actually said mother cussing. And I'm going to do that because <laughs> I think, one, it is delightful. And two, I think it's really freaking funny. And three, it's a nice callback. So, um, yeah, what do you think? This is kind of what I was trying to get at with, with the whole, like, the influence of Wes Anderson I don't think has been fully seen yet, even if we can say that some of, like, the indie Sundance films and Maybe guys like James Ponsolt or whatever. Maybe they have been somehow influenced by some of this stuff. I mean, he's probably more influenced by Linklater, actually. But um, but still, like, I do think that there's like a a young group of people who are go kind of growing up with speaking the language of twee fluently, so to speak. And I wonder if Logan's nineteen. I wonder what his generation of filmmakers are gonna produce, and if they will be more like directly influenced by or maybe representations of a sort of Wes Anderson style. That's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah, it's kind of cool too to see to see how uh, visual ideas get passed from filmmaker to filmmaker and how some people might be um, aping Linklater or Wes Anderson and not even realize it because their influences have already been distilled from those and, and sort of remixed... Uh, on uh, you know a different uh, younger generation or circuit of filmmakers um yeah. yeah i i'm i'm always eager to uh hear what folks you know this is a trite thing to bring up but every movie is different depend depending on who's watching it and uh i'm, I'm always excited to hear someone's uh, perspective on something my, i mentioned my girlfriend earlier and she she never watched a lot of movies before we started dating 
And now it's kind of fun when we watch an old favorite of mine that she's never seen because it's like mm. I, I get to watch it again through her yeah, eyes yeah, yeah. and see yes. how she responds to it. You know, that that stuff is always um, it, it's it's really fun to see how new generations of filmmakers or just film fans respond to certain things. Um, I, I can say for one example for myself, I I grew up in the 90s and I mentioned Tarantino earlier and I saw a ton of terrible Pulp Fiction ripoffs before I actually saw the real McCoy. And when I finally saw Pulp Fiction, to me, it was like, oh, yeah, I've seen I've seen tons of movies like this. And it just didn't it didn't really scratch the itch for me. And when you talk to folks who saw that in theaters, they were like, my head exploded because I didn't know you could do that with a movie. Yeah. I didn't I, I, I didn't know that you could make movies like that. It was so cool and fresh and exciting. Yeah. So you never know uh, the way those influences uh, trickle down or around. Um, but to to uh, go back to the wolf thing yeah, the uh, wolf. that he yeah, brought yeah. up in this. What uh? What was your interpretation of that sequence? For for my two cents, all it all, all it really conjured for me were uh, images of Michael Clayton, where George Clooney steps out of his <laughs> car to stare at a horse, and then the car blows up. And there was a part of me that was like, "Is one of these informing the other?" But I um, I'm uh, I'm not quite sure. What was your uh, What was your read? What was the philosopher reacts to the wolf moment? Yeah, it's just the kind of something similar that we touched on before, but about I think human beings um. Are, are constantly being warned about the potential kind of evils within, right? That there's some sort of possible animalistic nature or a source of violence or something like that. And so I think in a, in a very simple way, this film is trying to kind of draw that juxtaposition between what is sometimes viewed as the potential for animality, the potential for violence, uncontrolled chaos, and then the structure of society. So is it a sort of like Hobbesian thing where there's like nasty human nature that needs to be controlled by some sort of bureaucratic institution? Or the flip side of that would be Rousseau, where it's like, actually, no, it's society that corrupts a sort of innate human spirit. You know, this is a sort of philosophical question that is often explored. And um, again, to do a plug, I talk about this in my last video that I just released. It's on Jordan P. Peterson, a very controversial figure, but um, I basically talk about um, is Jordan Peterson really a fascist in my video? And one of the things that he really emphasizes is this possibility of kind of like the spirit of Auschwitz kind of lives within his students and he warns against them to try to like fight against that. And that's one position. Whereas a lot of times you get people on the socialist side that would try to argue the opposite. They tend to kind of stand in that Rousseau lineage where I think um, where Peterson's a bit more in the Hobbes. Of course, he's inspired by like Jung and some of the kind of ego psychologists post-Freud. But I think then the kind of like the, the Rousseauian influence is like, no, actually human beings um, are capable far much more, maybe they're more inclined toward, maybe they're essentially good um, and actually it's just society that corrupts. And then of course some people, and I think I'd, I don't want to like mischaracterize Peterson because he tries to do this, um, they kind of like bring things together and say maybe it's both, maybe it's not. You know, and so I think there's a lot of interesting exploration there, but I think that's kind of the idea that was being explored with the wolf. The wolf is just pure animality, yeah. right? There, there is no and pure, yeah, pure atavism, and that's this. It. This kind of comes back to something we we touched on last week, though. I I think I mentioned something about the the tension between how Mr. Fox sees himself as you know, uh, the ultimate provider in a very rigid sort of patriarchal societal sense, but he also sort of I, I think is harboring this notion that he still is oh no but if I you know it's it's the equivalent of um uh someone sitting on their lazy boy on a Sunday afternoon watching uh 
Aaron Rodgers run a bad play and saying like, whoa, what are you doing? If I was in there, blah, blah, blah. Like there is a sense to me that uh, Mr. Fox looks at the wolf as like, oh, that's almost a, an aspirational figure that he's really got it all figured out. That guy over there, like it, it, it's almost like, um, you know, his John Wayne or his Clint Eastwood in a way. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Before we dive into the mailbag, I want to give a shout out to this week's sponsor, Storyblocks. Storyblocks is the complete stock solution, providing an unlimited library of over 1 million royalty-free, high-quality video, audio, and images through cost-effective subscription plans. In the past couple of years, we've seen YouTube and Twitch really tighten down on their DMCA policies. It's gotten so bad that you can get permaban for humming a song. That makes quality stock music essential to creators who are using these platforms. With Storyblocks, you can browse their massive library by genre or by curated collections. They even have sound effects if you want to add something funny or dumb to your stream deck. The best part is that once you download an asset, it's yours to keep. You won't have to limit your stream or video quality just because of your budget, since Storyblocks offer affordable subscription plans to fit your exact needs. So check out all their subscription options today by going to storyblocks.com wisecraft or by hitting the link in the show notes. Now back to the show. Um, okay, so again, to everybody listening, if you want to leave us a voicemail to comment on any of these issues, please do. 1-213-534-8807. I'm just going to quickly read one email before we shoot off. If you want to email us rather than call us, you can at movies at wisecrack.co. That's movies at wisecrack.co. So this email comes from Freddie. Are you a video gamer? much Raymond me yeah oh uh not not really I have a uh I bought a PS4 when everything started going on lockdown just to you know yeah. help kill some time but same I, <laughs> I I really I pretty much just play overcooked with my girlfriend I can't I can't yeah. claim to be a gamer <laughs> okay well so Freddie says hey wisecrack Freddie here been a fan since 2018 I wanted to talk about the movie escape from New York although I'll admit I didn't watch but now I want to well first of all Freddie please do um, what I wanted to talk about is the inspiration that game creator Hideo Kojima took from this film since he is also a film guy. One of the video game series that Kojima made was called Metal Gear Solid. Maybe you've heard of it. Anyway, the main character is one called Solid Snake or Naked Snake, whichever game you played. He's a one-eyed special op soldier who inflates... Uh, infiltrates enemy facilities to intercept their master plans for world destruction. The game is fun and deals with a lot of themes, some like anti-war, a change in perspective, change in value, peace, revenge, and other great stuff. That's all I gotta say. P.S. I wish you guys would have done John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness, which is a great film for podcasts during John Carpenter Month, but I hope you get to do it in the future. So, uh, first of all, did you ever play or are you familiar with Metal Gear Solid? Absolutely. And it's funny okay. that uh, Hideo Kojima would come up on this episode because he and uh, Del Toro have uh, a great mutual respect for each other. Um, oh, I know cool. they, they hold their uh, each other's work in high esteem. I think they were even uh, collaborating on a project for a while. I know that Guillermo Del Toro uh, appears as a cameo in Death Stranding, which I have played. Um, Same. But uh, I, I think they were developing... Uh, a Silent Hill reboot or sequel together for a while, but um, yeah, that's uh, that, that's funny that that would come up. But sorry, go ahead, Austin. No, yeah, but did, what did you think of uh, of Metal Gear Solid? Are you a fan? Um, I I have only played um, I played Metal Gear Solid a long, long time ago when it first came Same, out yeah. on uh, the early early PlayStation consoles. 
Um, and I don't think I've ever played it from cover to cover. I did, however, just get the most recent one. I haven't started it yet, but um, I'm, I'm interested in checking it out because I, I really enjoyed Death Stranding. Cool. Yeah, so here's what I'll just say really quickly. I think the most interesting takeaway from this is that Kojima is a very cinematic uh, video game maker. And he's probably one of those leading influences from the early days that has really influenced a lot of uh, ones um, like The Last of Us and the Uncharted series and stuff like that that have really become more cinematic in... I mean, Uncharted was always pretty cinematic, but it's become really, really, really like great with its story craft. And I, I, I can't help but wonder if Kojima and the early days of Metal Gear Solid was a big influence on some of that precisely because he was so influenced by cinema. So cinema then is infused into video game. And then of course now video game is then re-influencing cinema, right? Like Ready Player One and various things like that. So, um, but also just with the special effects and graphics. And I think there's something really interesting there. So that's, that's all I kind of I think, I think, yeah, I think that's a perfect uh, a perfect way to bring it full circle with Del Toro. Like I mentioned, he's uh, to to double down on my uh, my fanboyism for the uh, the filmmaker. He's someone who I I really admire the way that he he reaches in all directions for inspiration, whether it's video mm -hmm. games, literature, painting, sculpture, art. Um, you know, he's he is. Uh, you might call him a twenty first century Renaissance man, Austin. I might um, call him that. <laughs> but uh yeah he's he's uh quite the pop culture polyglot and i love that he it, sort of to bring it back to pacific rim he comes to these pop cultural artifacts or, or not necessarily artifacts but these movements and subgenres with the innocence and earnestness of uh, of a child and he he doesn't judge any of these subcultures. He he doesn't look down on anything. He he looks for the the humanity in all of them. And and any time that he borrows something or takes some inspiration from uh from a corner of filmdom or or pop culture, it's it's always a guarantee that he will do his damnedest to respect that while trying to replicate it and uh, and homage it. So even if he misses the mark sometimes, I still um I still got to give it up for the guy. He's a great filmmaker. Well, that's amazing. Well, so as we finish up, I just want to give you all a little announcement that in two weeks, I believe, I believe we're going to take a break next week, but of course, sometimes we pop up uh, with last minute ideas, but I think definitely in two weeks, we are going to be doing the Snyder Cut. We are going to be talking about the Snyder Cut and, and hopefully we have a uh, yep. special... <laughs> Hopefully we have a special, special, special guest. I can't say who yet because we're not 100% sure, but hopefully we have a special, special guest talking with us about the Snyder Cut. So just get ready for that. It's four hours long. Break it up into multiple viewings if you his, have to. His but... initials are ZS, <laughs> and he might be joining us no, for no, a fancy no. discussion about his movie. I mean... Uh, the Snyder no, Cut. Don't spread rumors. The Reddit sub for the subreddit forums will go crazy. Don't spread bad no, it's fake not rumors. Snyder. It's not Zack Snyder. Um, although Zach, if you're listening to this and you want to come talk with us about it, then you know, come check it out. Let us know. Yeah, come on the pod. All right. <laughs> so where can people I find you? Dawn of the Dead. <laughs> where can people find you on the internet, Raymond? Yeah, you can find me on uh, Twitter and Letterboxd. I'm at Crematoria. That's uh, C R E A M A T O R I A. What about you, Austin? 
You can hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden, Insta, AUS underscore H-A-Y. Check out my YouTube channel. Like I just said, I just released my my first new video on this new relaunch uh, that I'm doing on Jordan Peterson. Three reasons why Jordan Peterson is not a fascist, but one big reason why I'm still think why I'm still critical of him, why I still think he's dangerous. But um, anyway, check that out. It's a bit of a clickbaity title, but it's actually got some substance there. And if you know me, that's my vibe. You know, a little bit of art, a little bit of aesthetic, and a little bit of, like, depth. So check that madness out. It's just Austin Hayden on YouTube. Send us out, Raymond. Goodbye from the breach at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean.